The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Hello and welcome to the December 21st, 2018 episode of Out of the Question podcast. And this happens to be our 45th podcast of 2018. We started it early this year, and this will be the last one for this year as we look forward to 2019. My co-host, Reverend Steve Macias. Hi, Rev. Hi there, Andrea. So today, our question is, is yours a holy family? So tell me, Steve, is the reason that we look at Mary, Joseph, and Jesus as the holy family because the child in that family was God and man. So is that what makes a family a holy family? And we should not even aspire to even try to use that title or that designation for our families? Well, I think the holy family certainly applies to our family. And it's not a matter of coincidence that God chose to have Mary as a mother and Joseph as this type of surrogate father and and Jesus come as a small child. There is as you know, and throughout all of the Bible, a symbolic or typological meaning to the family. From Adam all the way down through the families of Abraham and Isaac, the roles that are just by nature biological, father, son, wife, these family roles are part of God's plan for human creation. And so they can't be ignored. So we have to find out what does God mean by family and how to be a holy family. And I think that begins with going back to God's law and seeing what it meant to be a holy family for the first family. I think we're really going back to the idea of God as creator. If we have any sort of understanding that says it isn't exactly the way the Bible says it is, what we're leaving the door open to is all sorts of redefinition. And I have to laugh because the big thing today is cultural appropriation, that you can't say you're one ethnic group if you're not really of that ethnic group, and you can't even dress that way because that's considered appropriation. Well, think of how many things that God defines in his word have been appropriated and then polluted. Certainly so. And there's this uh, Twitter storm that's been going on the last few weeks about uh, certain prominent Christian theologians describing the idolatry of the family. They're saying that worship of the family is the great evangelical idolatry, that um, somehow that if we put too much emphasis on our relationship to our children or too much relationship on the cohesion of the American family, that somehow we are following too much of the world and not really focusing on the spiritual power of the gospel and that this is a distraction from the real purpose of the gospel. But what we would learn from Dr. Rushduni is that the family, this relationship between parents and children, is the first principle. Right? It's the primary place by which we can teach the gospel. Uh, some people would say it's our, our first church. It's the first institution created by God. Right? Before God established the temple or God established the judges or prophets, even sending his own son, he sent a family. He took Adam and made him a wife, made them worshiping beings, and the first family became the first church. So Adam, Eve, 
Cain and Abel become this first proto-church, first proto-prophets, first proto-institution, the state, and so on, is echoed first in the family. And so Dr. Rushton would make the case that all of the authority, therefore, comes from the individual, that's Adam, into the family. And then that family institution becomes the source of all other institutional legitimacy and authority. And so if we were going to talk about a holy family, we need to find out exactly what it means to be a family in the first place and its relationship to our other spheres of life. I think that's important, but I want to talk about the shell game that goes on here. You know, if you're dealing with a magician, the way in which he's able to produce the effect that he can make things appear out of nothing is by diverting your attention someplace else. So you're looking over here, but there's not a, like, don't look over here because this is where the quote unquote magic or deception is taking place. So how ridiculous is it to say that the evangelical church is putting too much emphasis on the family when you look at the destruction of the family across the boards. I've read recently someone making the observation that the Industrial Revolution took the fathers out of the home and they were spending less time with their families. Mandatory compulsory public education took the children out of the home. And then, of course, as you have this push for feminism and that women are just as good as anybody else, and they have to be in the workplace or in politics to prove that they're worthy, then they're out of the home. And so it's hard-pressed to look at the fact that says we idolize the family when even so many in the church have given way to this humanistic idea that a family is anybody you group together and we'll just call that a family. And if you'd like, I'd I'd like to read that tweet just so we're not quoting somebody out of context. Sure. Uh, It's uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung, who's the senior pastor of uh, Christ Covenant Church out in Charlotte. He's a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. So he's one of what we would consider our guys, right? He says, quote, one of the last acceptable idolatries among middle-class Christians is the idolatry of the family. And I think that you are absolutely right. If we look around our culture today, there's compromise and there is a great deal of brokenness in the family. Personally, my family, growing up as a non-Christian, my mother was 15, my dad was 18 when I was born. We lived with my father's mother because of the brokenness of her own family. She's one of eight children, all with different fathers. There's a great deal of brokenness in my family background. Divorce, there is drug use, all these things that I didn't grow up with a background of, of rosy 1950s, leave it to beaver family life. <laughs> and so maybe, maybe that's the reason why I reacted so strongly to this and say, you know, what's missing is not too much emphasis on the family. What's missing is the structure, the pillar, the foundation, the godly life that the family actually can provide. Having a father and a mother who are involved in raising children is God's plan. And it provides the best possible foundation for any child, regardless or not of the various abuses. That's God's stated Standard, we want a mother and a father to raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to provide for them, to, quote, shelter them, to clothe them, to educate them, that this is the parent's responsibility. This is how God imagined it would work out. And I hear and see, because social media lets you see probably sometimes more than you want to see about people's attitudes and perspectives, 
but we've taken father and mother and denigrated the terms so that if somebody wants to give a slur on someone, they'll say patriarchy as if somehow or other they've just given you the worst designation. So it's been systematic for quite some time to degrade the family to the point that children's loyalties, because of the peer group pressure that shows up in public education, and even a carryover a little bit, it's possible in private schools or Christian schools if the family is not demonstrated as the, that entity which is giving the school authority to teach the children, that what we have is we have people on the defensive where they should be on the offensive, saying, no, you're stealing the term, you're redefining the term. The Bible says there should be no idols, but our purpose should be pursuing the kingdom of God, and the family is where God says this dominion orientation should take place. That's right. And it's completely foreign to us today. I've been teaching through Rush Journey's book on Genesis to my elementary school kids, obviously softening some of the, the things, but we're right there in those middle of Genesis chapters with Abraham. And I keep reminding the kids, because we're also in anticipation for Christmas, and the themes of Advent, our expectation for the child, that Abraham's one desire, the thing he wants more than riches or land or title, is he wants an heir. He wants a child. And the same thing was true for all of Christianity. We wanted this messianic child to come. But today, if I were to ask any of my parents of these students, aren't you looking forward to your next child? Or how many more children do you want? Or to anybody, children are not viewed with that same delight and anticipation. Their first thoughts are, well, that's how many more thousand dollars of tuition and how much more time away from my job. There's in Christianity, this delight and eagerness and desire to be a family. But our modern culture puts that as a negative, as you said. Well, for families that I know that have more than five children, and I know some that have upwards to 10 going on 11, people look at them with disdain. Meanwhile, most of these families, if not all of them, are not looking for public assistance. They're not stealing to give to their family. And yet they're looked on with disdain is that somehow or other they're doing something weird and perverted. Uh, you know, my wife is one of, of those 10 children. And you would think after you know, the Duggars have made the splash on TLC and everybody knows of a family with many children, she still gets the strangest reactions to, oh, I'm number six of 10. <laughs> the next question is, you're not going to have 10, are you? You wouldn't do that to yourself. You're, you already have three. That's way too many. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, yes, it's possible to turn your children into your trophies. It's possible to decide that you're going to marry a woman who looks particularly good and she's going to be your trophy or vice versa. Here's a man who's very successful and now I can live in the way that I always felt that I should be able to live. So granted that people can turn anything into an idol, let's go to what you said initially. What constitutes holiness when it comes to the family? To piggyback right on what you just said, certainly somebody can make an idol of the family. And so we should say something to the effect that every family only becomes a holy family if its intention and purpose is 
eschatological. Every family cannot just merely be a, a biological family. Every family must die to the world's purposes. It can't just be for the sake of pleasing other people or for the sake of my own desire to have lots of children. The family has to live a kind of messianic life in itself. It has to die to the purposes of this world and it must undergo you know, some type of theology of the cross before it can experience true glory. And so, as you know, as a parent, every family will face hardship and suffering because of its size, because of its place in this world. But those parts are part of God's process of making it into a holy family. So I would say that to be a holy family, we need to look at the different parts of God's kingdom. We need to look at the things that God's family is called to do and recognize the essential part of those kingdom works that require the family. So first I would talk about shaping worship. Most people try to put this division. There's the church and then there's the family. But I would say that the family is essential to having churches. Churches are nothing more, in a sense, than collections of families. And for the last 100 years, churches have been dividing families into Sunday schools and smaller groups and not really experiencing this full idea of of family worship, what some people today are calling family-integrated worship. But the Holy Family is a family that worships together on Sunday, And that may look in a variety of different ways, but it worships together throughout the week as well, that there's a father leading his children in proper Christian catechesis. It's a mother and a father responsible for instilling morals and values according to God's word. There's a responsibility for the family to daily be lifting the name of God before the family and worshiping him as a family, uh, which you can see from the very beginning is the pattern. Adam and Eve, or Abraham and Isaac, or even this holy family themselves, Mary and Joseph. They come, and they come to the temple. They come as a family to worship. Absolutely. And when you examine it from the point of view of what does Scripture instruct us to do, then we better use the terminology and the perspective. So let's go back to... Ten is too many. How could you possibly do that? The world is overpopulated, which of course it's not. But Psalm 127 said, blessed is the man whose quiver is full. In other words, you wouldn't want to go out and conquer the world, obtain your food if you're a hunter, and what, have one and a half arrows? (laughs) You know, so having a full quiver means that you have the basis not only for dominion in terms of a training capacity, but think of all these people who limited the number of children they had or aborted their children. What do they expect as they get older? They expect everybody else's children to pay for them. Well, obviously they like children. They just didn't want the responsibility necessarily of raising their children. And the other side is what kind of vision do we have for that future? It's one thing to want children so that we are provided for in our future, but our children and their children represent the vision that we put forward today. So one reason that we have families and large families and covenant families and reconstruction families is because we see that they are our means of extending our agency over the world to come. Another way to see this, what kind of culture 
Today, we, we complain about this a lot, but what kind of culture do you really want to see? And do you have hope that you'll be able to accomplish it in your lifetime? And if you're like me, who are not yet 30, or some of you who are later in your life, you probably don't anticipate that within the next generation, much is going to change. But if we have this multi-generational vision that my children and my children's children will inherit the land if we stick to the covenantal promises of God, then we should think in terms of this is our children and our children's children land. Therefore, the family is essential. We need to be developing and training our children to be the true inheritors. So what you're really saying is when we have this skewed view of the family and we accept other people's perspectives as being valid, two men being you know, husband and wife or two women or now with people deciding they're not really their biological sex, they're something else, that as we do this, what we're doing is we're forfeiting the future as opposed to investing in the future and actually positing what God says is true. The righteous will prevail. Every place our feet trod will be ours in and through Jesus Christ. And that we've got to stop apologizing for the word of God. So I think it's a crisis of unbelief. I actually think that since the first and greatest commandment is to love God completely and not partition out, well, of course, the Bible doesn't talk about this part, that we're really talking about people who don't believe what they often like to convince others they do. I mean, it's not a, it's not a coincidence that childbirth and the pains of childbirth and labor are attached to the curse, right? So in that eschatological picture, Christ and the scripture points out that the new creation is going to come through birth and through the family. Now, primarily and first, and the work of it is done through the birth of Christ, but there's, these are all symbols and pictures of how the work is going to continue. Mary, in her beautiful submission to the word of God, says, let it be unto me according to thy will, and Christ comes. So each of us have the same opportunity in our holy families. Are we say, be it to me according to thy will? And then with each birth, with each adoption, with each addition to our family, we are actually saying, Lord, be it to me according to thy will. And we're accepting what you call the responsibility of putting forth the kingdom to the next generation. Uh, we are setting the plans for transformation based not on our own flesh or blood, but based on our faith, our belief in Christ's promises. And let me just zero in on the mother aspect of this and the wife aspect, since I'm obviously most familiar with that and I can speak anecdotally and experientially. The pain of childbirth, although I don't think it's, most people would say it's pleasant, (laughs) have a quick labor, it's way intense, If you have a longer labor, it's an endurance trial. But at the other end of it is a love and care for this wonderful gift that comes to you. So that's why the scripture always talks about, you know, the woman is in travail, but afterwards her joy is full. And so we have taken and said, that's a bad thing. Oh, you just want to keep your wife barefoot and pregnant? Oh, she's just a baby machine, as opposed to God could have chosen any way to have the human race reproduce, but he chose through the womb of a woman 
And then ultimately, he entered the world through the womb of a woman. So it's a high position of privilege that God has given women. And yet, those who want to destroy the family now talk about the inherent right of women to do the most unnatural thing, and that is destroy the fruit of their womb. And if I can quote Calvin just for a moment, he talks about this very, very same idea. And he points out that throughout church history, we have referred to the most holy institution, the church, as our mother. So the church has historically understood the role of the mother to be one of the most central and important roles. You know, even the scholastics and the medievals all pointed to this role of mother as the most important job. So Calvin himself says that, that we should learn from the visible church, that is our mother, how useful, indeed how necessary it is that we should know her. Calvin says, for there is no other way to enter into life unless his mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at her breast, and lastly, unless she kept under care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh and we become like angels, our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we have been pupils all our lives. You see, the, the Reformation understood the role of mothers was very similar to the role of the church, that this was a central place to be. And I can't understand how any mother would take that honor and that title and say, I'd much rather work for some corporation, or I'd much rather not enjoy the care and the, the blessing of caring for children. To me, if you go take a job outside the home as a means of status, you've just taken a demotion. In God's economy, you just gave yourself something that anybody could do. Quite frankly, that's the whole pitch of equal pay for equal work. A woman could do this job too. Yes, acknowledge she could. And you know what? In a lot of times, she can do it better. That's not the point. She gave up the highest calling she could have. They've forfeited having a family or even raising their own family, and they've now made the work of business or the work of politics way more important than the family. Well, Chesterton has a great quote on that. I don't know if you're familiar with this one, but he says, you know, discussing women going into the workplace, he says, feminism was the movement for where women who were tired of being dictated to by their husbands all went off to be stenographers. <laughs> and that is the, what you've basically described is the issue is not ability or worthiness. It's not even a, an issue of, are you ontologically equal? Every Christian would agree that, that men and women were both created in the image of God and that we all were created innately by our God for a divine purpose. But the problem is not that women were called to be in this one estate. It's that women were called to this special holy calling that only they can do and that only they have the privilege of doing. It's like being a queen. It's not like being a slave. And so we've absorbed the attitudes of the world. I have known a pastor when I congratulated him on his daughter getting married saying, oh, you're going to be a grandpa. And he's like, I hope they wait. I hope they don't rush into having children. And I'm like, okay, why? I'm too young to be a grandpa. And I was like, that is actually your reason? Well, they need to get a chance to know each other. Well, if they're going to get married, they should know each other. Well, lo and behold, when this pastor had a grandson, he was delighted. He didn't care how old he looked. There was this beautiful treasure that he was given that 
the child of his child. And so I think we absorb these attitudes and unwillingly or willingly, depending on how it goes, fall into the idea of, well, I don't want to tell people that they've been married five years and they have five children. I mean, that's disgusting. Why? That the two people are intimate and they live in marriage? Is it better to have multiple sexual partners and take care of none of them? I'm one of those, we've had five pregnancies and we've been married for six years and we've had those same type of comments <laughs> of, right. well, don't you want to wait? There was a, a man in our church when we first got married and he gave me some wise advice. He be obviously believed in having lots of children. And he said, Steve, the honeymoon is never over. You just have to go back to work. And I think that so many folks put that in the other order. You know, they... They go back to work and they hope maybe one day, I'll put it aside, one day we'll have kids, one day we'll travel, one day we'll have these excursions after the fact, right? They put this, this view that somehow our work and our pleasure are somehow separate and not related to it. Somehow our work for the kingdom or our work for our families, our joy, are separate entities. And what God says is that when you follow his law, it is a delight to you, right? When you get into his will, get into his role, his mission, it's a blessing to you. And so the, the role is not separating work and, and family balance. It's finding a place where the mission of your family and your daily life, your vocation, your job, your wife, all of these things have complete alignment with what God says. That's the place of delight, joy, and happiness, is the place where what you're doing makes God happy and makes you happy. And so many find themselves squandering their best years because they're frittering away their time trying to make themselves happy or their spouse happy, not realizing that true joy is in Christ. And we know those words, we hear those words, but we don't pause and look at the example of the Holy Family and see that their true joy was found in complete and total obedience to God. Now, it's no mistake that the Bible talks about the wife of your youth the idea is that you don't wait until now you have to be concerned of your biological clock ticking. I know lots of people who held off having children for whatever reason, and then in their 40s, they decided, I, we want children. Well, okay, they, they ended up conceiving and having children, but a 50-year-old woman, and I know someone recently who's close to 50, by the time her child is 20, she's going to be 70. Wow. And it was that she couldn't ever get the man she eventually married to commit. And I can't tell you how many stories I hear of women who married in their 30s or early 40s who basically said to the man in their life, either there's a ring on my finger or we're done. Now, meanwhile, they had been giving themselves to these men before and so then the men had to decide, well, am I going to let this one go away or not? So in so many cases, and I'm sure you run into this as a pastor, you, you have people who don't have a concept of what it should be. And they're just going along with picking and choosing what they saw at a movie or on television or someone they know. And that's what they want to pattern their life after. They, they miss the point that marriage is for your transformation, not for merely your joy. 
Uh, that's why it's such a blessing to get married when you're younger, because there's less of you to transform. Um, right. <laughs> you know, who you are when you get married changes after those words I do. And it's the process of marriage is, is transforming your family to be more like the image of Christ. And the, the marriages that are most successful are those who recognize that that's what's going on. Now, if you wait until you're later to get married, you're going to have more and more background and baggage to transform. And so it is, of course, more difficult. Now, I'm sure Andrea can tell you there are lots of stories of people who commit their lives to Christ and transform their marriages nonetheless, not to discourage people from getting married when they're older, but that that's the point of, of marriage, of the family, is that two people will find each other not because they're merely soulmates or they have some lust that needs to be quenched by the institution of marriage, but that this is how God joins two people together as one and makes them into something new. And we all recognize that in that process of newness, that God is going to have to break one or two of the partners every once in a while. On a daily basis, I should add. I've been married (laughs) 43 plus years, and I can say with all certainty, it's not that love has sustained our marriage. It's that our marriage sustained love. Because there were times that I can tell you that we didn't like each other very much, but that was sort of like off the point. We're married, we're committed, and we learn. And then in the good seasons, because there are good seasons, you look back and you say we learned a lot from the difficult times. Well, if it's just so easy to dissolve and it doesn't matter, what you're really saying with very few exceptions, because there are reasons biblically that you would divorce, is that you're saying it got hard. And so a lot of people didn't run into that they're going to get remarried. I don't know that I would be comfortable with somebody who bailed after so many years. What confidence do you have that they won't bail again? That, that's why the commitment part of marriage says, till death do we part. There is this real idea of you were making a covenant. And so for many ways, this marriage is uh, symbolic of the church in Christ as well. Um, Every marriage is a statement of whether or not Christ is being faithful to you. When you make a covenant, you're making a covenant to the church that's there, but also to God. And your marriage itself is a picture of Christ's fidelity or faithfulness to the church. And so a husband who, like me, uh, if when my relationship got difficult or I struggled to to do the things I ought to do. I'm not just being unfaithful to this one person. I'm not only being bad to my wife. I'm also making a statement about how I feel about Christ's faithfulness. I'm saying that my faithfulness as a, as a husband is questionable and that Christ himself might be questionable. There's a picture that it's given not just to our spouse, but to the world. When we have marriages that are, are falling apart, when we have Christians who can't commit to their promises of matrimony, we are making a statement about the culture and the promises of Christ. And so every husband who is unfaithful is undermining the picture of marriage that Christ has given us. So it's more than just one particular marriage. It's a picture of marriage for the whole world. It's a part of our gospel witness. The vows usually go something like, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, sickness and in health, and as you said, till death parts us. Well, idealistic people think better or not so good. 
<laughs> richer or I guess we don't get to go to Hawaii this year. In sickness, well, I didn't think he was going to be this kind of a patient. I mean, I can't do this. In other words, you're vowing with the intent of, I don't know everything that's in our future, but if this covenant of marriage has the third person of Christ being part of it, then he sustains the marriage in terms of what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it. And we become better citizens of the greater community if we have been practiced at weathering difficult storms. And that's true for marriage, and it carries over to child-rearing, right? There's going to be uh, difficult parts of raising children, but you still have the same type of covenantal responsibility to, to care for those children and to love those children and to be responsible for those children. And that begins with a picture of what healthy Christians are in the marriage is the primary instruction for your children of what Christian individuals look like. It begins at a place like the dinner table. It begins with actions like hospitality and provision. It begins with those ideas that we commonly associate with Leave it to Beaver, but are basic parts of our daily liturgies, our daily habits. These are the daily actions that instill these values and cultures into our children. And so for many, many ways, our daily married life, our daily family life defines our household and our family. No matter what we believe in our head or what books we read, it's how we act Monday through Saturday that really forms who our children will become and what they believe. Wouldn't you agree, Andrea? Yeah. And when you, you bring up Leave it to Beaver, that's kind of the way to encompass what was depicted in early television as the ideal family. And what, of course, was missing in Leave it to Beaver was loving God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. We got to see the normal of sending your kids to school. We got to see the normal of not telling your parents everything. We got to see the normal of the mother who looked like she didn't do very much because all she was in the kitchen or whatever. So we were given stereotypes that then we were going to embrace. And unfortunately, when Christians lament about the current state of our society, a lot of them want to go back to the 50s. Well, they have to understand that the, that was a depiction that wasn't biblical, and the 50s gave way to the 60s, and the 60s had all this turmoil because we had lost the Christian foundations of our society. And so... I think the goal is not to go back to the 50s. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but we are in a different time, I'm sure you would agree, than the 50s. But it's not a time unknown for the people of God. For you and I, we live here in, in the Bay Area, in California. And so many people would look to us and say, you guys are in the middle of liberal USA. You're in a place where they hate families, where it's too expensive to raise families. How in the world do you expect to have these lofty ideals put into your family in a place where they don't agree or they don't support it? And I think that this is a good time for us to return to the scriptures. You know, the prophet Jeremiah raised a family, encouraged the raising of family, told people to get married and have children, not in the promised land, not in a place of Jewish thriving, but rather he told them 
while they were in the midst of exile. So God's plan, no matter where you are, remains the same. In fact, when you are in the point of persecution, it's where you most importantly have to take the call to have a family seriously. If you're in exile, as as Jeremiah was, then that's the one time where you begin to put these ground blocks for reformation. If you are feeling as though it's most difficult to raise your children here, that's the time when God most importantly needs you to start raising your families. Right? Western civilization may be disappearing in the West, but the only way it comes back is by raising holy families. The Christian consensus is built upon mother and father and child. It's not built upon books, ideas, politics. Those things are all secondary. When we are pilgrims in a strange land, we must begin to build our families first. We have to, what he says, settle down, build houses, plant gardens, and have children. That is how we bring about a peace in exile. That's how we bring about dominion in a place of persecution. And that's where we get, in in a very real sense, the foot soldiers to storm the gates of hell, to give up and say, well, it costs too much to have children. Or if we have more children, we have to get a new car and we can't fit all of them in. In other words, let's acknowledge that the current cultural norm makes it difficult. But if it is worth doing, it doesn't matter if it's difficult, it still remains. And if the church is going to embrace its role as the family of God, we better understand the family as God instituted. Otherwise, what does being part of the family of God even mean? That's right. And is your family a blessing to the nations like, uh, like what Abraham was promised? For most of us, it's probably not. We're, <laughs> we're very focused on blessing ourselves enriching ourselves, working hard for our family, making sure our children go to the right private school or home school or go to the right college and get the right job. But do we understand the role of our families to be a blessing to our community? Or have we only created little Christian enclaves where we have our, maybe our co-op group or maybe our Christian reading group or Bible studies? Have we recognized that the purpose of our families is a blessing for this nation? Are we allowing our children to uh, be cut off from influencing the people of this world? Exactly. You homeschool or you put your children in a private school, not so they stay in this protected, gated community forever. It's that you are equipping them to go out and disciple the nations. That's the point. That's why... The goal shouldn't be a great family. The goal should be the furthering of the kingdom of God and his righteousness or justice. And the family is the primary means to do it. So getting in your car is not the end result. The car is going to get you somewhere. So you need to know what the destination is in order to say, okay, now I'm backing out of the driveway. Do I turn right or do I turn left? You sort of have to know where you're going before you know what to do. Well, and you mentioned uh, Psalm 127 earlier about, you know, the quiver and the arrows, right? It doesn't do us any good to sharpen and to straighten up arrows if we're just going to leave them in the quiver, 
right? We have to have in mind when we're putting together these quivers that we're, our goal is to launch these out into the enemy, right? So we have to string up our bows and unleash our children into the world. And sometimes that requires firing them right into the heart of the enemy territory. So we have to make sure that our families, our homes, are fortresses where we're actually raising children that are strong enough, that are equipped enough, that are wise enough, that when they are shot out into the world, um, they're not influenced by the world, but they are changing the world they land in. We have to realize that as part of our team, they're not collateral damage that, well, okay, if we lose a couple here, it doesn't really matter. Because as our children understand, and this is something that I've only recently begun to really appreciate and think about, people of God are part of a royal priesthood. That means your son, who's not yet five, needs to understand he's part of that royal priesthood. It's not, oh, when you get to be 18, you'll be part of that royal priesthood. Or once you accept Jesus into your heart. No, he was born into a Christian family, and these are the requirements. And you're either going to be faithful to them or not. And so if we let our children know, you've been given a lot what are you doing with what you've been given? It's not, well, I don't know that I choose to live this way. Well, go back to the parables. The servant that buried his talent didn't fare as well as those that used the talents that their master had given them and then developed them. So we need to let our children embrace the fact that they are part of this royal priesthood. I think the temptation, uh, especially in conservative Christian circles is that our job in training children is to train them to avoid evil, right? We, which is a good cause, right? But Christian parenting must be more than filtering out what television they watch or filtering out what groups of people they associate with. We must train our children not to avoid evil, but to conquer evil, right? Not just to avoid looking evil, but to overcome evil with good. And so the goal is not just to train children who know the truth and not just children who can interpret the truth, but to train children who can transform the truth. And you mentioned my five-year-old and we read them bedtime stories. We talk, we teach them about Kings of Camelot and dragons and things that can be conquered. And it reminds me, I, I can't remember if it's Lewis or Chesterton now, but he has a quote that goes something like, we teach children that dragons exist, not because we're trying to, to scare them, but rather because we want to teach them that the dragons can be conquered. And so whether you're a priest of the kingdom of God at five years old or a priest of the kingdom of God at 90 years old, the mission is always the same, that we are being sent out into the world to subdue it, to have dominion over it, to conquer it. The dragon is to be destroyed even by the youngest of our elect, as was pictured with the Holy Family itself. Herod himself is toppled not by a great kingdom, but by the birth of a small child. That dragon of Jerusalem is overcome with grief and fear, not by a mighty army from afar, but by a small child who does not even cry, according to these Christmas hymns. <laughs> <laughs> And so that's our picture here of raising families is the greatness of this world is nothing compared to the greatness that exists in our priesthood, in our families.
and that submissive families, submissive not to the world, but to the word of God, are being raised up and through weapons formed not of steel or iron, but of God's truth. We are actually conquering the world in our humility through our willful submission to God's will. And that's such an important point because Christianity is the only religion that requires us to pray for our enemies, to do good unto those who persecute you. In other words, the greatest victory for the Christian is to have one who was an enemy become a brother or sister. And that's why, quite frankly, if God is for you, who can be against you? This game already, we already know the results. What we have to do is go out there and play the game or fight the fight knowing that Jesus is victorious. Not that he's going to be, but that he is. And the game is not just of moving forward the football down the field, but it's really having the kingdom come down from heaven onto earth. And so we have to ask, how does the holy family relate to this idea of of Christ's kingdom? And I think that the words of Jesus here are, are most important. Jesus said of the kingdom, let the children come to me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Christ himself believes that the future of his kingdom is in the children. Now, lots of people use this for theological discussions and debates, but at its very face, he is saying that the kingdom of God belongs to our children. The future of the Christian world, the privileges and benefits of the kingdom, belong to our children. And so we as, as ambassadors and priests of the kingdom have a responsibility to include our children in this battle and to include more children in the battle, right? Raising children is a form of missionary work. I can't think of any other words other than the words of St. Paul that our goal is to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, teaching our children to have a heart for God and to command them to do everything that God has told us to do. So as you accurately said, this is much more than don't smoke and don't chew and don't hang around with those that do. That's not raising a Christian family. Raising a Christian family are those who understand that they're called. It's not an accident that God called them into marriage and then children and then children being born into a family. But here's the admonition I would say to anyone who's listening who really hasn't embraced the idea that it matters how they educate their children, what they do in terms of communicating right and wrong in all spheres of life, that Jesus said, if you lead one of these little ones astray, it'd be better if you had this giant rock around your neck and you're thrown overboard. So with all the blessings there are, there is also the warning that if you don't discharge this duty appropriately, the future isn't bright for you. And the picture is of a vine, right? So the children are a vine around the mother and a vine that's not properly maintained, that's given poison rather than nutrients and water, dies and withers. And with that vine goes the mother and the child. And so the family must be responded and respected as a cohesive unit. There's not one person that is the primary 
person. It's the, the point of all these patriarchal structures is that Abraham needs Sarah. Adam needs Eve and they need children. There's no primacy here of one person of the family, but rather that God creates this one unit called the family and uses the family to move forward his kingdom. And it works in a type of a, a symbiotic relationship. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. I would like to recommend a resource that's available at calcedon.edu. It's an audio album on the doctrine of the family. Do you have any recommendations, Steve? Well, if, you've, if you haven't read Who Owns the Family, that's a good one. I believe that's North. That's a, a great one to read. And then Yuri Brito uh, published a book called The Church-Friendly Family, which is, I think, very helpful in this regard as well. Thank you all for listening. And if you have any suggestions for topics you would like to see us cover, you can email outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit kingdomdrivenfamily.com. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.